2: Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Marco Ferrante, author of Indian Perspectives on Consciousness, Language, and the Self, the School of Recognition on Linguistics and Philosophy of Mind, published as part of the Rutledge Hindu series in August 2020. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Malcolm, and uh, hello and hi to the listeners.
2: So... We're going to be talking about a few different intertwined topics on the podcast today. You talk about consciousness, about language, and also the metaphysical status of the self. But now this is the language channel, so I'm going to start with the topic of language and we'll work our way through the other topics as they're interconnected. Let's start at a high level. You're looking at two philosophers, Utpaladeva and Abhinavagupta. What is the main idea that they have about the relationship between language, consciousness, and the self? What are they arguing for?
1: Okay, so, uh, well, uh, very broadly, uh, the, the main idea of the book is that these ancient Indian philosophers that I examine and in it, that is to say Utpaladeva, Abhinavagupta, and also uh, Bhatrihari, uh, who lived a little bit earlier than the other two, Uh, So all these philosophers more or less argue that one cannot properly cognize or be conscious of anything without the existence of a language. Now in a nutshell uh, their main idea is that in order to be conscious first one has to know uh, something then in order to know one has to act but in order to act uh, and this is the important point one needs a coordination of mental states which is possible according to them uh, only through an overarching activity of the mind that is conceptual and the idea of uh, conceptuality at least within classical indian philosophy is almost always uh, associated with language so i would say that most of the book circles around the relationship between consciousness and, and language. But as you said, it is also true that uh, at least with Paladeva and Davinava Gupta, um, they explicitly argue that if there is consciousness, then there must be someone who is conscious of, that is to say, a self. And this is, of course, I mean, it's not banal, as it may sound at first, upon first hearing, But it is quite compelling, because one can defend the notion of consciousness uh, without entailing the existence of a subject of experience. And this is clearly demonstrated by all sorts of Buddhist philosophies, classical India, for instance. But uh, the defense of the existence of this subject of experience from the criticism of Buddhism is precisely... The ultimate purpose of Utpaladeva and Abhinavagupta's work. But also Bhartrihari, even if he's less interested in a in this apologetic dimension, we could say, as a Hindu Brahmanical holder, accepts the existence of a of a self, of a subject of experience. So this is more or less the, the big picture, I would say. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, so so what got you interested in these thinkers? Utpaladeva, Abhinavagupta, and Bhartrihari?
1: Oh, yes, this is a, a good question, um, which is, I mean, I, I could answer uh, partly uh, biographically and partly, uh, yes, uh, considering what I have done in the last year. So, my interest in Upaladeva and Abhinavagupta, so in the Pratyabhidna school in general, uh, so the school of recognition, uh, stretches back to my university years. Um I had the privilege to uh, study Sanskrit and Indian philosophy in Rome in Italy with Raffaele Torella who is a world leading expert on this on the school basically. So I'm familiar with the themes of the school since a quite quite a long time and since the very beginning of my career as a student which is not uh, I mean did, did not take place yesterday unfortunately. So to this uh, sort of main uh, biographical aspect, one may add that my work has often focused on the, uh, on the work of uh who is a uh, 5th century linguist and philosopher who gave uh, enormous, I would say, contributions to the study of language in, in, in classical India. So the point is that Bhartriyari is often quoted uh, and discussed and taken as model by Upaladeva and Davinava Gupta. So, at one point in my uh, in my career, I was allowed the opportunity to spend some time working on the relationship between these two sides. And at first, the idea was to study the historical and philological relationship between Barthiyari and uh, and Upaladeva and Abhinavagupta, so the Pratyabhijna holders. Then, in time, uh, I think that the work became much more philosophy-oriented and came to take the form of the book that we are discussing now, basically. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the book, it includes philological aspects, of course, because you're working with these texts and you have to think about questions of texts and a priority between authors and things. But really, one of the things you're doing in the book is trying to understand their ideas as philosophers and, and engage philosophically with them, uh, and, and bringing in things from uh, analytic philosophy and contemporary philosophy as well. Yeah, good. So let's um, let's talk about that then. So you're you're um, you're trying to bring uh, Indian philosophy these these thinkers who are writing between the fifth and the tenth centuries, you know, in the common era into conversation with contemporary analytic philosophers of lo- of language and as well as mind. Uh, and you mentioned that this is a place that you came to in um, writing the book. How do you engage this way when people might say that these are very different traditions, they're starting with different languages, different contexts, uh, maybe even different questions and presuppositions? How are, how are you bringing them in contact with one another?
1: Yeah, thank you very much, because this is a a uh, uh, really important point before answering that just give give me two minutes to or even one minute to specify what we are talking about because um to better understand the relationship between these traditions and uh, and contemporary philosophy of mind so the the, the school of the recognition is a, a tantric shaiva school that thrived in kashmir around the end of the first Millennium of the Common Era. So their basic doctrine is uh, a form of, of non-dualism or monism, if you want, since they believed that the whole reality is nothing but an expansion of consciousness, more specifically of Shiva's consciousness. So human's purpose in life is, come, 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 comes down to uh, recognize this fact and to become one with Shiva himself. In a way. So, the three main holders of the school, which are Somananda, which is less um, important in the book, and then Utpaladeva and Gupta. Uh, among these, these three, probably the most interesting one and the theoretician of the school was the second, Utpala, um, who, who was the holder of the basic text of the tradition, so the stanzas of the recognition of the Lord, a work that was later on commented by the great. Uh, Abhinava Gupta, who was one of the most important intellectual, intellectuals of, of classical India in general, a real polymath, and uh, who probably was a disciple of a disciple of Utpaladeva. So, And this uh, intervening master was uh, named probably Lakshmana Gupta, even if he didn't leave behind any, any, any work. So this is more or less the context of the school, and then, as you rightly said, I've tried to approach these um, authors uh, from the point of view, I mean, also using uh, concepts and ideas of contemporary analytic philosophy. So the, the question is, um, actually, can we really do these things? Can we do this sort of comparative philosophy? Well, some would say that it, it is absolutely impossible Well, I- other would argue that with precautions, with care, we can compare doctrines uh, of authors belonging to different ages and different civilizations. Now, since we are talking about a book that mostly does comparative philosophy, it should be already clear what is my opinion on the on the yeah. issue. <laughs> Great. Now, I definitely think that comparative philosophy is legitimate. Uh, and that by practicing it, we can learn something different from what we would gather from from no comparing or from comparing works and others between the same culture that is what we usually do in in your american philosophy. But it is nevertheless useful to consider at least a couple of ob- or, or one objection to the very possibility of comparative philosophy. And this um, objection is that Um, we can't do a comparative philosophy, because by doing so we are simply uh, or in a way projecting our Euro-American conceptions and ideas onto other cultures thus practicing some form of cultural colonialism and in that way overlooking historical differences this is a, a good objection, I think, and the point is how to reply well, a first answer could be, uh, well, when we talk about Euro-American philosophy, we are not talking about a monolithic entity. We are talking about a collection of uh, quite often uh, conflicting views. Um, it is certainly true that one is applying one's own personal uh, worldview when dealing with other with other cultures, with other civilization, and certainly we should make an effort to uh, minimize uh, the biases that we have. Even if I think that it's, I mean, it's quite uh, almost impossible to eliminate all all of them. The second, I mean, uh, uh, objection, this time more uh, uh, philosophical in a a way, more substantial, is that uh, Euro-American and Indian philosophies embody alien cultural paradigms that are impossible to reconcile. And this would be based on the idea that different paradigms are incommensurable, an idea that is, I mean, uh, deeply influenced by the now classic work of Thomas Kuhn on scientific paradigms. This is, of course, debatable. Um, uh, To be more specific, I have discussed in some detail at the beginning of the book uh, the way in which Kuhn's Uh, arguments are refuted by Donald Davidson um, on this point, on the point of incommensurability. So I encourage readers and listeners to have a look at the way in which this incommensurability uh, perspective can be tackled in a way. More specifically, and just to to, to, to finish my my answer, uh, what have I done to avoid these charges these this possible problems, because they are problems. In one word, I have tried to contextualize as much as I could. So all that I say in the book is based on a first-hand experience of the works I'm examining. Then, of course, everything I say can be criticized, refuted, lambasted. But I have tried to ground my interpretations of the doctrines of these philosophers sticking
2: to the texts right right and you're doing that on both sides you might say you're looking at the explicit views of particular analytic philosophers as well as the views of indian philosophers arguing that they're both both doing philosophy so yeah i would i would encourage readers to to take a look at at the discussion of methodology if they're if they're interested in that Let's, let's dig into the details, though, of, of the, what you're calling the doctrines or their views. So you mentioned Shiva, and you mentioned that um, Shiva is important for, in particular, Utpaladeva and Abhinavagupta in terms of the self. Can you expand a little bit on this? Why is the status of the self so important for them, uh, thinking here in particular about Utpaladeva and Abhinavagupta? And why do they think that language is so important in understanding at uh, the self? You hinted at this earlier. Let's dig in a little bit more.
1: Yes, Uh, so the status of self is absolutely crucial for the philosophy of the recognition for the Pratyabhijña school, essentially for two main reasons. The first, if you want, is a little bit more religion-oriented, the the second one more philosophically interesting. Now, the first, um, the more religion-oriented, is that the self, which is intended by this thinkers as pure freedom to act is, as I uh, quickly mentioned before, the embodiment of Shiva himself. So liberation, which is crucial for these philosophers, as it is for most classical Indian holders, and liberation is um, the liberation, uh, the release from the cycle of births. So liberation comes about when one realizes that there is no difference at all between one's own, one's own consciousness and the universal consciousness that is identified with the, with the deity in question, with Shiva. Now, one thing that it, that I think is important to, 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 to underline is that this idea, so this idea of identification between a universal consciousness and uh, an individual one, looks quite similar to the uh, to the ancient Upanishadic notion, um, which is quite well known even in in in, in the Western culture, you could say, uh, whereby our inner self, Atman, uh, is to be identified with the cosmic principle, Brahman, a notion that is uh, uh, besides being known also outside the uh, restricted circle of specialists of Indian philosophy is. Uh, also the basis of the entire Advaita Vedanta's philosophy, for instance, probably the uh, uh, most um, <laughs> famous uh, uh, darshana or philosophical school of classical India in outside India. Well, the Shaiva's notion, so the Pratyabhijna notion of this identification between personal self and universal consciousness is actually... Uh, rather different. So for them, liberation is not produced when one discovers oneself as identical to the universal consciousness, but once having immersed oneself in this consciousness, one is capable to disengage and reengage with this consciousness at his own uh, at his own will, basically. So you, you must be able to go up and down, in a way. So liberation is intended here quite dynamically, and it consists in freedom of action. I have to quote, and in regard to this, uh, my uh, my teacher, uh, Raffaele Torella, was used to say, for these philosophers, liberation does not consist in being able to reach the highest step of a, of a ladder, but rather... To reach the highest step and being able to return to the lowest to the lowest step at will now this notion is of course um strongly influenced by the religious beliefs of these orders with paladeva and Abhinavagupta. gupta i mean who were besides being a quite sophisticated philosopher they were tantric uh, gurus tantric masters so you, you asked me about the role of, of language from this um, religious, in a way, perspective. Language was seen as a, a creative, a creative, sorry, aspect uh, uh, of the subject that was inevitably associated with, with the self. This is the first, um, in, a, in a way, reason why the self is so important for this for these philosophers. Then there is a second reason, a more argumentative one, that is, of course, connected with the previous one. Um, And the centrality of the discussion of self in these works, in the works of Abhidhamma Gupta and Putpaladeva, is due to the necessity these philosophers felt to answer the criticism of the notion of self that was advanced by the Buddhists, historically and um, so buddhists are very important actually in defining the philosophical identity of the school of the recognition. first because they were their main opponents but also and this is quite subtle uh, also because they were a source of philosophical notions that the shaiva thinkers were able to adapt and reuse in a new context and to use them against their original (laughs) Uh, mm. Supporters mm-hmm. in a way, and that's another right. quite interesting aspect of this, of this, um, of this
2: philosophy. So, so they're concerned with the, the no self view of the Buddhists, in other words. Um, there and when we were thinking here about which Buddhists were concerned with what you might call the epistemology school or the Pramana Vada. Um, and so these are the Buddhists that they're in, in engaging with primarily, so Dignaga, Dharmakirti. Uh, and so can you say just a little bit more about then why uh, why language is important in their their arguments here in response to these pramanavadins or these epistemological thinkers?
1: So the point is that uh, there is a complete different understanding of the role of language between the, the, the Buddhist thinkers that you have just mentioned, so Dignaga and Dharmakirti, and the, the entire school, the logical philosophical, mm-hmm. the logical epistemological school of Buddhism, and, the, and that of the, uh, the um, Pratyabhijñā authors, quite influenced uh, in this respect by Bhāviveka himself. So, whereas for the for the for the for the Buddhist for the Buddhist epistemologists, uh, language was um, one of the yeah connected to one of the two main uh, two main ways to to know. The other one being pure perception, if you want. Well, language is is considered a second rate uh, way to to know things, and the only reliable one is uh, is actually uh, direct perception. No, this is in a very in, in a nutshell. Of course, there there is a lot of things to do about it. The the position of the Pratyabitna, influenced by Botri is precisely the opposite. We can we can do uh, we can do anything without language actually, and any kind of uh, cognition that we entertain is basically conceptual, and it is um, for this reason um, related to to, to language.
2: Our cognitions are inherently conceptual, which entails that they are inherently linguistic. Uh, and you've been mentioning, so let me make a connection here, and you can tell me uh, if this is where you want to go. You've been mentioning Bartrahari as being important here, and he is a grammarian. And so this is, you know, the language channel. I think our, our listeners would be interested in understanding um, this this thinker in particular and how he's important here in informing what's going on in Upaladeva and in Abhinavagupta so he is one of the um, one of those who argues for a close connection between language and con- our cognitive uh, our con- conceptions can you say a little bit more about his arguments there uh, and then be able to, to bring us to understanding of what's going on in Uphaladeva and Abhinavagupta that way?
1: Absolutely, yes. And Patria is probably, even if, if I mean, it wasn't probably the only one. He's certainly the most uh, uh, the most well-known uh, figure in Indian philosophy stating that uh, any cognitive uh, episode is um basically ba- based on 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 language and uh, this is a clear influence on Utpaladeva and Dabinava Gupta um, which used भर्तृहरि's uh, argument uh, as a tool to counter the Buddhist um, the Buddhist attack the Buddhist criticism of the notion of self now the thing that i uh, basically argue in this book um, does not concern um, the, this relationship in itself because the, the fact that Vipaladeva and Abhinavagupta Gupta knew Bertry very well is, uh, was already established by scholarship before me and uh, from quite a long time I would say one century more or less <laughs> so uh, what I wanted to, to do in this book is not just to, to, to notice some general uh, similarities between the two sides, but to show that the influence of Bertieri is actually working on a very specific point. And there are also other points in which the the, the, the um, Platybignan philosophers do not follow Bertieri at all. Now, the point, according to my analysis, the point in which um, Bertieri's philosophy, Bertieri's thought, is really important is... Uh, actually uh, in the conception of, uh, of consciousness. So the, the two sides, so Bartrieri on the one hand and, uh, and the Pratyabhina philosophers on the others, share the idea that mental states uh, are conscious because they are the content of an activity of conceptualization of mind that is inherently linguistic. So, in general, what we have, um, so we have mental states that are about external objects, first-order mental states, which the Pratyabhijña others call often Prakasha, meaning simply light or cognition, and higher-order mental states that make the first ones um, conscious, which are called in the Pratyabhijña works Vimarsha, meaning reflection or conceptualization even and these latter are precisely um conceptual and being conceptual they are based uh on on language and this as i argue in the book looks like um similar to um, uh, the so-called higher order theories of consciousness that are defended by some contemporary theorists in 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 contemporary philosophy of mind um Now, how do the Indian thinkers argue for this picture, for this two-tier level of consciousness, in a way? Now, to make it very short, uh, they believe that a cognition is true if, and only if, one can successfully act on its basis. So the criterion for truth for them is essentially pragmatic um differently from, from other schools and other traditions who defended different criterions of truth for truth. Then after having said that, they go on by saying that in order to, to act, to really act, uh, one needs a coordination of mental states um, that is possible only if these mental states that are directed at the external objects, so the first order mental states, um, can be uh, coordinated only if they can be syntactically connected. And they call this syntactical connection with a quite interesting uh, Sanskrit word, anusamdana, uh, that they regard as so sort of uh, putting things together according to a certain order. Could be a, <laughs> a not very literal translation, but trying to express the sense of the. Of the uh, of this word, uh, and they regard this 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 activity of coordination as the fundamental feature of consciousness. This is the the the, the starting point in a way because um, theory more or less stops here and it gives the basics. Then the Kashmiri holders go farther uh, because they I mean they uh, introduce into the picture at least other two crucial concepts I think that I have discussed in a couple of chapters of the book, which are the notion of uh, chamatkara, which is another interesting Sanskrit word meaning wonder or something similar, and then also uh, what I think is a panpsychist perspective. Um, Why did they do that? I mean, compared to Bartrihari? probably because they need to explicitly um, defend a strong notion of self from the Buddhist criticism, something in which Bartrieri was not interested. Also because I I didn't say it explicitly, but between Bartri and the Shaiva philosophers, there is a, a a gap, a temporal gap of at least four centuries, and a lot, as you know, happened in between.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's see if we can sharpen this, or I'll try and sharpen it for myself at least, um, with an example. So if I'm understanding you correctly, we have these cognitions of the world. So I might look at a book, uh, and I have a perceptual cognition of that, that book. Um, but in order for me to Act and engage with the the book, like to give it to someone, to pick it up, and things like that. I need to have a second order awareness of that first state. That awareness of the 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 physical object, and that's the level at which language fits into the picture. That I have to have something like a concept of a book, a a uh, a concept of the things that I am engaging with? Is it a, is that a rough, correct picture?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, with uh, just an addition. Uh, the point is that these two phases that you have uh, very well described, should happen, uh, basically instantaneously. Uh, because one of the other points uh, that uh, the Pratyapidna philosophers uh, derived from Bertieri's work is precisely the idea that you cannot um, uh, treat a cognition uh, as a content of cognition so there, there can be there can be a cognition of a cognition this means that you cannot uh, say uh, in that explicit way that a cognition is acting over another cognition the, the picture and this is something that I have also connected to some Um, contemporary philosophers, um, the idea seems to be that these two phases happens at the same time. So a mental state is at the same time directed at at an object, but is also able to, um, so it has intentionality, but it is also able at the same time to uh, create a higher order uh, cognition of itself. This is the roughly the idea, the idea, I think.
2: Gotcha. Um, So so in contrast to a temporal sequence in which we have a a slightly later cognition, which takes a previous cognition as its content, we have, uh, in some way, two, two aspects of the cognition, one which is object directed and one which is directed at the cognition itself.
1: Exactly. I wouldn't be able to put it better. (laughs) Okay,
2: good. So then, so then um, one question then that arises, we have I ha, I'm, I'm perceiving this book and I have a cognition of the book and I have a, an awareness, a sort of linguistic awareness of the book. What's going on linguistically there? Is this am I thinking about this in, in English? Is Bartrahari thinking about this in Sanskrit? Is there some other language that's uh, deeper than either of these that's underlying? our uh, our concept? What's going on there for, for Bart Trihari?
1: Well, this is a very good question, and I don't know if I can uh, speak for Bart in a way, because probably he, he doesn't say anything so specific about it, but I understand your question is a very compelling one. So, um, generally speaking, um, and this is also true for contemporary philosophers, you can um, argue for, I mean, a strict relationship between language and thought let's put it, put it this way by arguing that the language that we are talking about in this relationship, of course, is a natural language so it can be Sanskrit in this way or you can, I mean, intend this relationship in a slightly weaker uh, fashion uh, by introducing the notion of, uh, of a language of thought, which is not, as you know, um, related, directly related, uh, or does not, uh, uh, cannot be identified with a natural language at first. So um, in the book, I've also tried to um, to see whether Bathriori was intending one thing or another. And um, actually, I don't have a straightforward answer because I have made the hypothesis that Barthiery may, may have had in mind something similar to a language of truth. Now, uh, the point is that I have to return to what I said at the beginning. Uh, the idea was to interpret these works by, with the help, if you want, of, um, of conceptions and tools from contemporary philosophy, but at the same time, Sticking to the text. So what I am saying now is not uh, Clearly stated in the text. So I cannot be sure whether Bhartriya was defending uh, a language of thought I'm not sure at all, but uh, mm, One can surmise something like that Analyzing one of the most famous contributions Bhartriya gave to, to Classical Indian philosophy, let's call, call it the way Um, So, the idea that language is not just um, an audible phenomenon so made of concrete sounds, so the one that we are using now, but it is something more. And um, so, quite famously, at least for us working on these things, he put forward the idea that language is um, divided, uh, can be classified into three or perhaps four different levels. So the first level, as I mentioned a few seconds ago, is the, the one that we use when we speak, like now. And uh, the second level, uh, which he simply calls intermediate level, looks quite similar to the language of thought that has been introduced in contemporary philosophy uh, because it is, a, is, a, it is a, a language that occurs in the mind even if it keeps having a syntactical structure and a temporal sequence. This is the second level. Then you have a third level in which um, everything is um, uh, reduced, in a way, uh, from a temporal perspective, because you don't have temporality any longer. You have, um, uh, I mean, an instantaneous uh, flash of understanding which corresponds to this third uh, level. So in the Vakyapadiya, which is the name of the of Bartriere's masterpiece, uh, this treatise on, on, on sentence and, and word, um, you have just explicitly mentioned these three three levels even if some scholars have um, hypothesized that perhaps there is also a fourth one that would correspond to we could say pure consciousness, because at that level, you don't have um, intentionality any longer. So to put it simply, I mean, I, to, to give a concrete example, I have a pen in front of me as soon as I uh, convey, as soon as I speak this, this, this sentence, as I utter this sentence, uh, that would be the first level. But at the same time, the same sentence can exist in my mind having that precise sequence but at the same time, and that would be the third level, the idea I have a pen in front of me is an instantaneous mental state and then if you want, you can add further and final level in which you have just the fact of being conscious without an object. That could be an interpretation of this uh, of this thing. So what is Bartriere defending? Is he defending a a relationship between uh, natural language and and um, and thought, or um, um, a language of thought, uh, it is really difficult to tell. Probably, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the easiest way, even if it's more complicated to defend from a philosophical point of view, uh, the, the, the the most natural answer would, would be to say no. Is is really meaning a natural language, uh, Sanskrit, and let me just say this, and then I'll. Uh, leave it to you, but mm-hmm. uh, even if it's complicated, some contemporary philosophers uh, actually uh, try to defend the notion that in order to have uh, thought, you need you need a natural language, which is a quite strong proposition. Davidson is the and also this time the the one to to to, to mention.
2: Right. Good. So. so- Let's see if we can shift gears a bit from Bartrahari to his connections to Utpalladeva and Abhinavagupta. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what we have here is that Bartrahari is giving us this these sort of uh, major ideas about the aspects of our consciousness involving these higher order representations, which are linguistic. In their nature, and that um, there's evidence in our in our acting, the way that we engage with the world, that we must have some kind of uh, putting together, the Pratisamdhana that you're talking about or anusamdhana, um, and that these are these are things which Utpaladeva and um, uh, and Abhinavagupta are drawing from from Bartrahari. And they're doing this in order, uh, at least in part, to argue that there is some kind of deep self, Um, this some self, which you're saying is, um, is in opposition to the Buddhist viewpoint, where um, what we have is something, you know, momentary consciousness, which is, is not unified by some underlying self. So let's let's turn to Utpaladeva and Abhinavagupta and their understanding of the self. Um, you mentioned panpsychism as one way of understanding what they're after. And you've also mentioned this really important idea, Chamatkara, which is often translated as wonder. Um, so first of all, have I got things right? And second of all, what is it that Abhinavagupta and Utpaladeva are arguing for about the self? So as I, thank you,
1: as I, that at the at the very beginning of our conversation, um, one can uh, defend the notion that we can be conscious without admitting the existing uh, of a subject of experience of a self. Now, the notion of uh, personhood and self has extensively, extensively been criticized by the Buddhists, as I uh, said before, and as we know, um, and that probably would be the <laughs> The main contribution, perhaps, to the, of the Buddhist to the philosophical debate of classical India. And one also should keep in mind that contemporary Euro American philosophers tend to be skeptical about the classical view of self that was, I mean, um, defended in, uh, in, in, in Western philosophy since the time of, of Plato, uh, that posits a subject of experience that. Uh, is able to to do some specific um, things uh, which has some specific features and that for instance remains persistent over over time over one's lifetime for instance now these these, these ideas are more or less um, I mean have been superseded by more um, uh, advanced if you want conception of what a self is now Coming to our Indian holders, as I probably mentioned before, Bhatrya is not particularly interested in this question. I mean, in, in the question of proving that there is a self able to do this and that and with specific characteristics. He takes it for granted, basically. Um, whereas with Palladeva and Abhinavagupta are much more concerned with the question because they are, um, their first um, purpose is apologetic. They have to try to demonstrate that not only there is a, a consciousness a pure consciousness having the characteristics that we have um identified a few minutes ago but that there is something more that there is a subject of experience that is able for instance to persist over one's lifetime um, and as you were rightly pointing out to understand how but Paladeva and Abhinava Gupta managed, or at least attempted, to demonstrate the existence, um, the existence of a self. We have to take care uh, to discuss a little bit this um, quite mysterious notion of chamatkara, or wonder, and this idea that it is a an interpretation of mine. I have to uh, have to say it. Uh, this idea of uh, panpsychism as um, I mean as a good description i think of what uh, the shaivas had in mind so um what is chamatkara let me start with this with this thing with this notion so in order to understand uh, the interpretation i uh, i give of this counter of this concept we have to say something about uh, very briefly of course about contemporary theories of mind now, Most theorists nowadays, nowadays, today, defend uh, some form of so-called naturalism. So, the idea is that conscious mental states depend or are reducible to physical properties of the brain, and finally to atoms and even beyond. Now, there are various currents within uh, various trends within naturalism, some of them are more strictly physicalist, uh, other less. But what is interesting to us now is that there are also uh, contemporary theories that oppose, in uh, one way or another, naturalism. And they usually argue that conscious states cannot be normalized, that is the the word they used, meaning that they cannot be reduced to physical properties. Why? First, because we don't know and this is true, I mean, we don't know, at least yet, how to explain the passage from the physical to the mental. And second, it's because mental states have a qualitative dimension that is purely subjective and which cannot be explained from a third-person perspective, so from an objective perspective. So, for instance, me and you could observe, you and I could, could observe the same, same sunrise, but it, what is like to be, that is the motto of these, um, of these thinkers, what is like to be dimension of seeing this sun- sunrise will never the same uh, between me and you. There will be always a subjective component in this experience. Um, now, what I uh, argue in the book, what I suggest in the book, is that this idea, is similar to a concept which is used uh, by the Pratyabhijña philosophers, as well as by others uh, writing uh, in the field of Indian aesthetics, that is Chamatkara, or wonder, as, as we already said. Now, what I have done in a chapter of this book is, um, uh, I went through the occurrences of this word in the works of Utpaladeva and Abhinavagupta. And it seems to me that the notion is clearly pointing at the qualitative purely subjective dimension of all cognition now if this is true i mean if if it is true that cognitions have a qualitative purely subjective dimension well then the buddhist criticism of self is already i wouldn't say disproved because it is not but it, it is already attenuated because the question in that case for the Buddhists would be to whom this qualitative aspect of experience belong. So the Pratyabhina, have, Pratyabhina holders have an answer because they would reply, oh, okay, it, be, it belongs to consciousness. So they have an answer, but it is, it is, it is not a totally uh, satisfactory one because also from their point of view, the problem is not resolved. Because pure consciousness, as I said before, is something that is different from personhood. And, for instance, if you argue in favor of a single unitary consciousness, well, you are at risk, for instance, of uh, imagining an enormous self that embraces everything, and this would lead to what philosophers call solipsism, so the idea that a self, uh, that there is only myself in the universe. Uh, So, and this is quite, uh, I mean, uh, counterintuitive. Uh, Or you can mm, end up with uh, saying, okay, pure consciousness is equal to the self. But then in that case, you would have an idea, a conception of the self that is strongly attenuated. And it, it starts to become quite different, quite difficult to tell the difference between what is a self and what is not because pure consciousness can, cannot have that kind of uh, features that uh, I referred to before and that usually are um, attributed to, to, um, to a self, which I have mentioned in a book and um, relating to a previous work of John Arden on this on this aspect. Now I think that the Pratyabitina's possible way out of this conundrum so between solipsism and disembodiment or attenuation lies in the uh, panpsychist outlook of their philosophy in a way. Uh, so what do I mean? So um, panpsychism is a, is a quite uh, hot, I would say, perspective in contemporary philosophy of mind, uh, so shortly the um, panpsychism holds that there is a conscious component that exists in matter and this component exists at the very micro level so at the atomic level or even beyond that now the position is quite contentious but it's also promising from a theoretical point of view why uh, because their supporters believe that through panpsychism one can avoid the problems one encounters by endorsing either naturalism or the opposite view that is usually called property dualism which is the position according to which mind and matter are not substantially different so there is no difference in terms of uh, of substance between matter and mind but they do keep having different properties. If you say that they are completely different things then you have uh, um, Cartesian dualism that's another possibility but it's it's really it's it's quite hard to defend so why is it panpsychism regarded as a better solution by its supporters well because it does not have to explain how one passes from the physical to the mental as naturalism should since panpsychism believes that consciousness so the mental is already there and also because it is not a form of dualism uh, in which you, in the end, postulate that there are two different things in the universe and it is also can, can lead to, to, to problems. Now, a panpsychist perspective can be, of course, criticized. Uh, one uh, first I mean, uh, criticism, not particularly compelling, is it, to ridicule the idea that an atom or a quark is conscious. But this does not lead us very far, actually. Uh, since, I mean, we, we all know that there are a lot of true, real things that are far from being commonsensical. Uh, and, um, and there is, in any case, a, a, a more uh, compelling criticism that is, that is, that is important and, and that is problematic for uh, panpsychism, because panpsychism has, has to explain how you can pass from a conscious microstate to a conscious Macro state. So to put it very shortly, how do we move and how can we move from a conscious micro state or micro subject, if you want, to a conscious micro one up to the point of having selves? Now, this is not uh, the the I mean uh, the occasion to discuss these things, but what I would like to draw the attention on is that. Um, the Pradyabinyas texts are explicitly um, saying something quite similar, yeah. because they say that consciousness is everywhere. And they explicitly, Utpaladeva literally says that if, if a rock were not conscious in itself, then no subject would be able to experience it. Usually uh, in the our in our hermeneutical efforts, these affirmations are not taken quite literally but metaphorically in the sense that okay yes it is true but uh, he means that shiva is everywhere and so on and so forth mm-hmm. now i've tried i mean i've made an effort to take them literally and to see what 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 happens um, so uh, uh, what happens i think is that uh, perhaps um, paying attention to this aspect can be helpful to understand how you can pass from pure consciousness to a more developed notion of self which is the main problem of, of, of the pratyabhijna now uh, to round it off what is, the, uh, what, what is the solution in a way so according to, 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 to these authors uh, even if we cannot expect a very um, detailed argumentation but what they seem to mean is that the difference that exists between a rock and a human subject is explained in terms of the level of complexity of the micros of the micro conscious items. So, in a way, a human subject will have a quite more complex arrangement of micro conscious states compared to a rock or. a uh, or other uh, less uh, complex beings, in a way. So these, um, I've also related this, this 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 thing to the 36 uh, tatwas, of, uh, which are important in the Shaiva uh, literature. That could be a, I mean, a, a metaphorical, if you want, way to to state these um, different level, uh, different levels of complexity. So. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me, let me let me try and put a, a point, point on what point you've been saying. So I make sure I've got it. So, sorry, hang on just one second. I think I have a bit of an echo here. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, perfectly. Okay, great. I'll cut that out. Okay, so for Avinav Gupta, a rock is going to have some kind of consciousness, but it's not going to have the same kind of. Um, maybe cognitive activity that a human being does. It's not going to think about uh, other rocks. It's not going to think about itself as a rock. It's not going to have some kind of special rock language, which is, this is maybe a sort of caricature of a panpsychist view that someone might, might have here, which is, well, if consciousness uh, involves something conceptual and something linguistic, then why not posit that rocks are, you know, speaking rock language and have these kinds of, of cognitions, uh, what you're, what you're saying is that for him, he distinguishes between different aspects of cognition. We have these direct cognitions of things, and we have this higher order, uh, cognition of, of, uh, that, that gives rise to consciousness. We have a subjective aspect to our, um, our cognizing what it's like to see the thing Um, and then we have our self which is uh, underlying all of this cognitive activity so of those aspects what does a what does a rock have uh, and what does a rock not have
1: so this is a a, a, a quite interesting answer sorry a quite interesting question i was thinking about the answer that is difficult for me to so the basic idea seems to be that uh, these, um, um, I mean, subjective uh, side must be present really anywhere. So um, the point is, as I said, is a is 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 a matter of complexity and uh, a matter of having um, items in the world uh, which has simply um, simply because they are so um uh, have a, a different level of um, of consciousness, sophistication. that could be a way to put it. Now uh, there is no argumentation or uh, I could even say that this is something that I would really love to to, 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 to go into the details because probably something else could, could could pop up in order to to corroborate this this idea but um, from from a from a I mean a theological and religious point of view, they would simply say that the level of manifestation of Shiva is much higher in a human subject uh, than in lower beings or lower entities, but it is always there. That's their their point. Um, I think it's uh, it's also I mean this this. Uh, Pan-psychist perspective, which is I mean, it's not a question whether it is there or not because they say it Explicitly, but the way in which we can understand it, of course um, Is another is another question, but this this perspective could be also useful to 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 address the question that I mentioned before so the charge of solipsism If you say that there is just one pure consciousness, what is the difference between me and you? and usually uh, this is quite problematic, and the 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 holders uh, uh, were were aware of the of the of the problem, and they try to uh, come up with a solution which is not particularly, I mean, which is interesting from the point of view of uh, of the history of of philosophy, but it's not particularly compelling in terms of arguments because uh, what they say is basically we don't perceive another uh, another person but we guess its existence uh and so playing uh, with, with 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 the pramanas so with the uh, ways of knowing and uh so in a way giving a um also in this way by seeing that i don't, don't do not perceive another person but i guess uh uh, uh is or her existence i am in a way saying that what is really important is my own consciousness so the subjective perspective remains more important. But if you, I mean, try to see this question with uh, uh, from the perspective of a, of a, a panpsychist view, uh, I mean, you can say that uh, um, actually they were aware of the fact that there are other persons in the universe and that we are not alone, but it is also this aspect is connected to a different level of, um, complexity, or uh, of, um, I mean, um, I don't know how to say it explicitly, but in terms of um, mm, of a highest um, mm, presence of consciousness, mm-hmm. I mean, what is what is mm, mm, what what you experience um, personally is uh, definitely stronger than what you can uh, surmise for, for others. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was clear. No, yeah,
2: yeah, that's that's, that's helpful. I think uh, this is this is fascinating stuff, and I think that um, there is a lot in these thinkers that uh, could be could be useful for people who are concerned with questions of panpsychism and uh, philosophy of mind more more generally. So, um, in addition to the discussion of language in your book, of course, there's this these metaphysical questions about. Uh, philosophy of mind that I think um, people would be interested in looking at and, and as we've seen the relationship between the two of them so yeah so thank you for that let's let's close up just by noting um what you're working on now you, you as you've said there's a lot that you could be working on what's what's focusing your attention right now
1: well okay so uh, I'm still always I mean I'm always
2: uh, interested in in
1: in bacteria's uh, hermeneutics, if you want, and also in um, non dualist, non dualistic philosophies in general, and also the Pragubhinnyan more specifically. But uh, at the moment, I'm actually working on uh, not so related stuff because I'm working on on Mimamsa literature, and uh, more specifically, I'm involved in a project uh, that try tries to understand. Uh, the way in which Vedic injunctions uh, are suspended and superseded by other Vedic injunctions within the sacrificial setting uh, with the idea to um, understand the relationship between the suspending injunction and the suspended one uh, and trying to formalize uh, all these things from using the language of uh, contemporary logic so it's another if you want, uh, multidisciplinary <laughs> attempt. And, yes.
2: Yeah. With a, a lot a lot on on both sides there, both in the Mimamsa literature and in in the contemporary work on on modals and yeah, all of those. It's, it's logic really, and it's really yeah,
1: It's really fascinating, and uh, I'm really uh, enjoying it. And uh, that's great. Yeah.
2: Great. Well, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Uh, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: It's a pleasure.
2: Great. Thanks, Marco.
1: Bye.